Question for you. What really matters to you? What really matters? Think about that for a minute. And while you're thinking, let me tell you the story of a guy named Frederick Bauer. Frederick Bauer. He was a guy, the question was put to him, what really matters to you? What's really important to you? And he had an answer, and he, he gave his answer to them, though not everybody who received the answer particularly liked it. This is the guy who actually invented the Pringles can. And so you get all uniform chips instead of just having them thrown in a bag. He thought that that was important. He invented the Pringles can. And so what he said really mattered to him was that when he died, that his ashes would be buried in a Pringles can. And his family objected. They said that's not nearly honoring enough. That's, that just shouldn't be the way that it's going to be. And they objected. But he said, this is what matters to me. And so finally they acquiesced. And you would think that if that was going to happen, that the can would have a special lining and that it might have some gold leaf on it or something like that. The logo would be in gold, something of that nature. But no. In fact, what happened is that on the way to the funeral home, his kids stopped at the local Walgreens. And they went in and they were deciding what flavor can they should use. And in case you know, they ended up deciding on the original. And that's how he indeed was buried. The original Pringles can. It seems kind of ridiculous, doesn't it, that that would be the case. But he said, this is what matters most to me. They just dumped out the chips and dumped in dad. That's how it went. Now, what really matters to you? There, of course, are a number of surveys that have been done questions asked along that line. And one of the things that comes back, a Pew Research poll came back, almost 75, almost three quarters of the people who responded that what matters most to them is family. And that probably doesn't surprise you at all. All of us probably have family pretty high on our list. Second on the list was actually practicing their faith, which is good, but it was nowhere near 75%. It was somewhere less than a third said that that was important. Actually, it came in right at the same level as staying active. So apparently, for many people, growing close to God is just about as important as playing pickleball and getting your steps in, or so it would seem based on that, on these surveys that have been Done. Now, long before Pew Research was asking what really matters, there was an important leader who was asking the same thing. Now, he wasn't asking it of a whole group of people as in a survey. He was asking just one person. This is a person who actually had spent a little bit of time around Jesus and got pretty impressed with Jesus. And so he came to Jesus and he asked him this question, which commandment is the most important of all. Which one really matters the most? He wanted to know the answer to our question here today. And the place that we find this encounter is in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, then beginning in verse 28. Please go ahead and turn there, take your scripture journals and turn there. If you're brand new and you don't have one of our scripture journals, you can stop out at the information center. You can do that now if you'd like. You can do that a little bit later on after the service if you like. But get that, open up your Bible, get the outline, get ready to go ahead and move our way through this text. And as you do that, let me go ahead and welcome not just those of you in the room, let me welcome all the, also those of you in the classic venue. Let me welcome those of you on the Moon campus. Hey, 
sorry to you guys for the person who is hosting you today down there at the Moon Campus. I'm not gonna mention his name, but you guys know who he is. So there you go. Uh, you guys don't have a clue what I'm talking about, but they know. And so that's what's, that's what's important. Welcome to those of you online as well here today. Mark chapter 12 and verse 28 is where this whole passage starts. Now last week, if you were with us, we saw that Jesus was tested by three different groups of people. And one of those, or actually what all of them were trying to do, was to trap Jesus in something that he would say so that they might discredit him. Of course, Jesus didn't fall into any of those traps, which only made these groups angry and wanting to get rid of him all that much more. But there was one person, one of the scribes, one of the teachers of the law who was there, who watched all of this go down, who actually becomes rather impressed with the wisdom of Jesus and he wants to know more. Now, this guy certainly would have known all of the regulations of the Mosaic law. He would have also known all of those additional ones that that the Pharisees and the scribes were just laying on top of all of those other regulations, and it just became so confusing. And so he comes to Jesus, and he essentially says, Jesus, would you please net this out for me? Which one is most important? Which one is the best? Which one really matters? I kind of like this guy, kind of like this. It kind of reminds me also of if, if after the service you go, you go to El Paso and uh, first of all you see all the other pathway people so you say hi to them, but then you sit down and you go ahead and you look through the menus, like 200 items on there and you're like, oh man, I don't know what I'm gonna choose and so you call over the server and you say, hey, could you please just net this out for me? Which one is the best? And the server says, well, the one that's best is the one with the meat and the cheese and the tortillas and the rice and the refried beans. And you're like, well, there's still 199 options with that. His response wouldn't have been all that helpful because he didn't really rule anything out, but that's not the case with Jesus. He takes all of those laws, all of those rules, all of those regulations, and he boils it down into just one, really two. He asked for one, Jesus actually gave him Two, and we're gonna take a look at that. This is where Jesus is responding to this question and he's saying, here's what really matters. You wanna know? Here's what it is. So we're gonna take a look at this. There's actually a few facets of what really matters that we're going to, to roll around a little bit to help us to dig into what really matters. And the first of those things is this. If we really want to follow after or dig into what really matters, we need to love selflessly. It's where it starts, we need to love selflessly. In response to the question put to Jesus, he responds in verse 29, look at it. Jesus answered, the most important is, drum roll please, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. (laughs) The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus says, Here it is, this is what really matters. Now, these words are probably very familiar to you. Very familiar to you. Even if you haven't been in the church for very long, these are probably very familiar to you. So much so that they're sort of in the category that I would categorize as gloss over familiar. Where you can actually hear them read, You can actually read them yourself off of the page, but you don't necessarily engage your mind with it, right? I've got something else like that, that something I've been reciting, I can remember just 
over and over again. Since I was a kid, that's when I learned it. And on this particular weekend of the year, it seems somewhat appropriate to share it with you as well. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's from, of course, the Declaration of Independence. And I can spout that off. I've said that many, many times through my life, and I can say it without thinking the first thing about what it says. They're just words that kind of come out. And that's a danger in a passage like this. As I was reading it, you were probably like, yeah, I'm familiar with that. Your mind probably processed it exactly the same way it did the last time you heard those words spoken. But you might not have really dug into what it means. And so we're going to take this very familiar passage and we're just going to pause to dig down just a little bit because I think it's worth it because it's easy to just run past this and miss it sort of all together. So that's what we're going to do, all right? So it begins here in verse 29 where Jesus says this, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The nations that surrounded Israel in the first century had one thing for sure in common and that is that they were all polytheistic. That is, they had many different gods. They had a sun god and a moon god. They had a sea god. They had an animal god. They had several different animal gods. If they'd have lived today, they'd have had a stealer's god, just like many people around us have a stealer's god. None of you, of course, but some people around our region have that sort of thing, and you know it. So the message of the Old Testament, and now here of Jesus, is that there is just one God, and that all of the other gods are false gods, and that idea would have been mind-blowing to the people who might listen on, other than the Israelites. Because this is a brand new idea, a brand new idea, this monotheistic idea of God. And the idea that this God wanted to have a relationship with you, that would be incomprehensible to them. But that is what is being said. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. One God. So Jesus tells the people of the importance of loving God, and he spells it out by giving us these four different areas where it's, to be, where it's to be true, and you know them all well. The first is with all your heart. The heart is considered to be the center of the motion, uh, emotions, our desires, our passions, this thing that moves us oftentimes to action. When you love somebody with all of your heart, what do you do? You are willing to do anything for them. You want to be with them. Your desire is to serve them, to help them. You'll go out of your way completely to build that relationship. Well, it's to be the same way. This means the same thing. If we're in love with God, if we're really loving God, it should be the same. We should be running after him. We should be desiring to spend as much time together as possible. It is the thing that should be most important to us. With all your heart, it says, Then also it goes on, says the love we have for God should also be with all your soul. This means that the love you have should come from the very core of your being. If there was some way to just drill down into the center of your being and see what is really at the core, what is at the center that motivates everything else, what we ought to drill into is God and a love for God. I don't know if that's how it is for many of us. Sometimes God sort of gets annexed and brought in and something else is at the core, maybe serving self, maybe serving something else or someone else. 
but it should be at the very core. I can remember talking to one man about his walk with the Lord, and I asked how, to, how it was going, and he said, oh, it's, it's going pretty well. I'm pretty happy with how things are. And then just to make conversation, I said, well, tell me about your hunting. And a light went on in his eyes, and his speech picked up, became more intense, the tone of his voice raised like an octave. It was very obvious. The thing where his passion lay had nothing to do with Jesus. It was all about hunting. What is at the core of our being? Jesus also says you to love the Lord your God with all your mind. The mind plays a critical role and the intellectual aspects of our faith must also be nourished. And when that's not the case, we can become spiritually imbalanced. And this happens for many of us where we get off of kilter. This is actually a, a beautiful contrast to what he was saying a moment ago. He talked about it being with all of our heart. Yes, our emotion, our desire, our passion. That should be a part of who we are, what our spiritual experience is, the way that we live that out. It should be evident. It should be passionate. For some of us, we have room to grow there, by the way. All right? It says that, but this is the contrast. It's the other side. It's the, the intellectual aspects of our faith should also be very important to know what it is that we believe, to understand truth. That's also vitally important. Both of these go hand in hand. However, for most believers, they lean in one direction or the other. One direction or the other. That's why we have both Pentecostals and Presbyterians. Right? Because we lean, but we can't. What he is saying is it needs to be all in both directions. You can't choose and say it's going to be this one or it's going to be that one and I'm just fine. They have to work in tandem. Lastly, this verse says to love God with all of your strength. This regards our physical capabilities. This is what we go and do. This is us getting engaged. This is us serving. This is also vitally important. The one who loves with all of their strength is not able to come to worship and sit and enjoy that and be thankful for that and get up and walk out and leave the work of the church to other people. You can't do that if you love the Lord your God with all of your strength. James says we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And Jesus' point in mentioning all four of these, in our point and in taking the time to actually remind you of these very things that are so familiar to you, is the fact that he is saying that for the one who genuinely loves God, what is really important, what we would really need to know is that all four of these need to be operating in tandem or together as four. It's not enough to say, well, I've got three of the four, so I'm just fine. No, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to love with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. Elsewhere, what did, uh, what did Jesus say? He says, if anyone would come after me, this is also in Mark's gospel, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Have you not noticed that as we've been studying? What does it mean to follow Jesus? That again and again and again and again, what does it call us to? Kind of part-time following? Absolutely not. Every time, it's, he wants everything. He wants everything, that all the rest of life needs to be subservient to us living our lives in faith toward Jesus. And so he says, yes, it's gotta be all of this and all of that and all of this and all of that. And we resist that. And we say, eh, it can't really mean all. I mean, I can interpret that different ways, right? Because I don't see or I don't know a whole, whole lot of people who, who I would say are all this and all that and all that and all that but it's what it's calling us to. And it doesn't matter if you can see it somewhere else. What does that mean 
for you. Jesus is saying this is where it needs to be, and that's a tall order to be sure, but Jesus isn't even done. He says, love the Lord your God and also love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's no accident that he puts loving your neighbor after loving God. A couple of reasons. One, of course, loving God needs to be tantamount. It needs to be first and foremost, though loving your neighbor is closely connected to it. Needs to start there, but also because you're never going to be able to love your neighbor in a biblical sort of fashion, in a God-honoring sort of fashion, until you love God in such a way. Because our motivation for what we do, the way that we live it out, needs to be modeled on something, and that something is the sacrifice of Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And it's demonstrating for us, this is the way that we are to engage with other people, looking at others even above ourselves, looking to their need, uh, needs ahead of our own. Loving our neighbor as ourself involves sacrifice. It always will, and that's the model whether it's about a relationship that you have with your neighbor across the street who lives in close proximity to you or across town or uh, the other side of the nation, it's all the same. They're all neighbors. Whether it is a person that believes like you do or not, whether it's a person who has not just a belief system but also might have an ideology that's in sync with yours or whether they don't. It's what we're called to. It's how we are to live. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, it can't really mean what it says there. It must mean something. No, it is what it says. We need to take God's word at face value and live it out. All of our hearts, loving our neighbor. He says, what matters most? You really want to know? This is it. Go do it, he says. And we balk. And we back down. And we choose something else. And we go somewhere else. And we might even call it good and thinking we're fine. Remember those 75% of people who say, yeah, what matters most is my family. Well, that's a high value. Scriptures say you should love your family. There's no doubt about that. But for some of us, we take loving our families. Now I've accomplished it. This is the only thing that I'm called to. And I can hide my conscience behind the fact that I'm loving somewhere much as though it somehow releases us from the, the need to love beyond. Jesus' response to the scribe's question seems to make sense to him, verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. Remember, now this is that scribe. And there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus is pleased with the progress that this guy is making, but he says, you're not quite there yet. Kind of makes you ask, well, well, what's missing for this guy? Verse 34 points out the fact that there's a difference between believing things about God and believing in God to the point of committing your life to him. It's a big difference. And we all know people who are knowledgeable about God, but they are not in a place of committing their lives to him. It's a line that Jesus is drawing with this man. It's possible to know things about God yet not know him personally unto salvation. Knowledge alone is not enough. And to really find God, we need to commit ourselves to him, our whole selves, our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul, our whole strength. It's what really matters. 
Jesus goes on then, he says something else that really matters in fleshing this out and he says that's to lead sincerely. To lead sincerely. There were a variety of opinions about Jesus when he was walking the earth and carrying out his ministry. Some were like, yeah, that's God in the flesh and others were like, yeah, that's a guy. That's just another man. Yeah, he's a good teacher but that's just who he is and so there's this debate going on and Jesus just grabs the bull by the horn and he says, well, let me just settle this for you once and for all. Verse 35 says, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and, and until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him Gladly. Sounds a little bit like a, a riddle here. But when it came to the idea of the Messiah, there really wasn't any debate as to the fact that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. Everybody agreed with that. No disagreement whatsoever. The Old Testament had said that clearly. Everybody's in sync with that idea. The question came over whether or not he was going to be, who's just a natural descendant of David comes on the scene and he's just going to be set up on a throne and hopefully usher back in the glory days of Israel that were there with David when he was king and, and Solomon. Is that the guy this is gonna be? Or is he talking about somebody else? <laughs> is he talking about one who would come as God in the flesh? That's the question. And Jesus says, well, that's easy. And he goes to Psalm 110, which is quoted here in our passage in Mark chapter 12. Psalm 110 in verse one, he says, it answers it right here for us all. And here's what it says. If you go to Psalm 110, you can see that this is a Psalm of David. So David's the one who is talking here. And he says, David says, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand. Clearly saying that Jesus is God. That's the implication of the thing that he is saying. Now verse 37 says that the people heard him gladly. And that suggests the same sort of response that we saw of the scribe earlier on where Jesus says, yeah, you're very close, you're just not quite there. And that's pretty much where these guys are also. They heard him gladly, but it stopped short of saying and they followed him gladly. They thought highly of him, but not so much to actually follow after him. It's very important. And we too, we can read the Bible, we can hear the truth, but never really go all the way with that. Kind of reminds me of a guy here at Pathway. This was years ago. Don't try to figure out who it is, you won't. But uh, he was here at Pathway, he came up to me, he'd been coming for months and months, came up to me after a service and he said, you know what, I don't agree with what you're preaching. And I thought, oh great, I braced myself for what was coming next. You know, is it that uh, you preach too long or you preach too light or you preach too heavy or you preach too much about cats or, you know, I didn't know what it was going to be exactly, I was bracing myself. He says, well actually, I just don't believe in God at all. And I said, well, then why do you keep coming? He said, well, I'll tell you, there's some things that I like. He said, I like the coffee. <laughs> and this was long before the new cafe when the coffee wasn't even good. I liked the, he said, I like your jokes. So there, take that. <laughs> you might try to do the same. 
He said, he said uh, I like the people. And I said, I also like to listen to you preach. I said, you don't even believe what I'm preaching. He said, yes, but I can tell that you believe it. And he said, so I like to listen. Here's a guy who listened happily, like we have in our text, but didn't believe. And, it wasn't, and that's what we see happening here. And that reality may, hit, may be what led Jesus to speak more of this, about more of the scribes who believed that they were in great standing themselves. Not the one guy who came with the question, but everybody else. They think they're doing fantastic when really there are tremendous problems. Look at verse 38. And in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes. These are all these guys' buddies who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. These scribes like to give off the impression that they were all about serving God and leading with sincerity when it was all for show. It was all for show. It was just for their own personal benefit. He says, they walk around in these long robes. Now the robes had a purpose. They were used, they were supposed to be used at a certain time, but they're walking around with them always because they want you to see, yeah, I'm one of those guys. You should be giving me honor. You should be giving me respect. And that's why they pray these long prayers because it looks like they're so spiritual when really they're not. He says, they even go so far as to cheat widows out of the few things that they have. And he says, they're going to be judged severely for that sort of attitude, for that sort of spirit, for that sort of pride. Now, it's easy to shake our heads at these guys, right? This is an area where we really need to examine our own motives and our own actions because there are times that we're tempted to act in ways or do things in a certain fashion or to say something toward the end of trying to get somebody to think highly of us just in what we say, and it may not actually be true. Have you ever said to somebody wanting to demonstrate how much of a caring person you are, I'll pray for you, and then you never do? Till so you see him walking down the hall at Pathway, and you're like, I promise to pray for them. Dear God, bless Pastor Jeff. Hey man, I've been praying for you, right? Or we pretend that something is true when it's really not all that true of us at all. You can answer for yourself on that, but whenever you live in such a way, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're manipulating your neighbor to a certain point of view about you for the benefit of yourself, not for your neighbor. Jesus says, lead sincerely. For you, that might be in your home. That might be your primary place of leadership. Maybe with your kids, maybe with your family. He says, lead sincerely there. Your family's gonna see right through any ruse anyway, right? Lead sincerely if you have a role in the church or in your neighborhood or at work or at school. He says, lead sincerely. Don't put on a show. Be genuine. I can promise you that people are going to be more impressed with your sincerity, even if it shows that you're not off on a pedestal like you want to create. They're going to respect your sincerity more than your vanity. I can promise you that. So when it comes to what really matters, he says, love selflessly, lead sincerely, and lastly, live sacrificially. 
With these self-serving attitudes of these scribes in view, Mark continues, verse 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. These offering boxes were just sitting out there in the temple courts. And so people would walk by and they're just kind of out in the open and you could see you know, people putting stuff in there and that's just the way that it went. Well, this had gotten so absurd with people wanting to have themselves lifted up so much that what sometimes would happen with a person who was coming to put in a large amount, usually a Pharisee or someone like that, they would actually hire a trumpeter to come and to play a fanfare to get everybody's attention so they were all looking when they put in their large sum. It had gotten that crazy and that absurd and Jesus is contrasting that. Or Mark tells this story that is contrasting that. Somebody else, verse 42, and a poor widow came and put in two copper coins. Now, I want you to pay attention to this because this is another one of those gloss over truths, right? You've heard this story before. Well, look at what it actually says. Two small copper coins which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Quite a contrast from these scribes. Now we don't even learn her name in this story. I would love to know her name, but we're not told. Ultimately, that's not the most important piece of the story. What is, is her action. She puts in these two small copper coins that are nearly worthless. But Jesus says it totals more than the sum of all of those other contributions put together. Why? Because she gave it out of her heart, out of her sacrificial spirit. That loved the Lord, her God, with all of her heart all of her mind, all of her soul, and all of her strength. That's what really mattered, and it stands out even to Jesus. Now notice in verse 43, Jesus specifically calls the disciples over to make this point, and I wouldn't be surprised if they were just kind of all agog with these, these big offerings that had been put in by these big players. And they're like, wow, this is really incredible. And he wants them to know, just like we need to understand, that if that's the thing that is really impressing you, then it's telling you something about your own values. What are the things that impress you? What are, you, what are the things that you're like, wow, that's really cool, that's really awesome? It's telling you a lot about your own value system. And in this case, the disciples seem to be very much impressed with the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus makes it clear that that's not what my kingdom is about. That's not what really matters. What really matters is the sacrificial spirit of this woman. It's interesting that Jesus never said, you know, what this woman should have done, she should have maybe given half of all that she had. And it still would have been awesome. That still would have been a great gift. I still would have respected that, but she could have saved a little bit back. Or it's a really nice thought, but she should have kept a little something to live on. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, in fact, anything along the lines of he really, she really should have worried a little bit more about taking care of herself. Doesn't seem that he is the least bit concerned about her safety in taking this 
action. He just commended her for her sacrifice, knowing that God would meet her needs. Commentator by the name of Jason Meyer tells the story of his young daughter who had brought an offering to give at church. And when the offering came around, he realized that she was putting into the offering, or about to, all of the money that she had, all of the grandparents' gifts for birthday, everything, she was putting it in. And, and he leaned over to me and said, honey, you don't have to put it all in. You can keep some of that back for yourself. And she said to him, I don't need money. I have a daddy. Which is true. Somehow she knew that her daddy was not for a moment going to let her go with her needs being unmet. And we have a daddy too. We have a father in heaven who has promised that he is going to meet our needs according to his glorious riches. And we can count on that too. So you're saying, all right, does that mean that you're saying that we ought to give everything like the woman gives? Actually, I don't know what the Lord would have you to give. To be honest, the actual number of dollars and cents that he would have you to contribute. That's between you and the Lord. And I would urge you to be praying about that so that you might actually know. Instead of being afraid to pray because of what you're afraid that God might say to you. But what I do know is that the constant testimony of the scriptures is that our gift should be sacrificial as it is for, these, for this woman here. Who are the ones who get called out? It says, even the ones who gave all of these large sums, they were just giving out of their abundance. She is the one to be commended because she gave Sacrificially, Jesus says that's what really matters. You know, it's easy to get sidetracked by things that don't matter, things that mo don't move us in the direction of following after Jesus as we've been thinking about in this whole series. Where's that to be found? So in this passage, we see that Jesus sort of pulls back the curtain and he says, let me tell you let me remind you, or maybe for the first time, let me communicate to you what really matters. He says, what really matters is that you would love the Lord your God, not just sort of kinda or in generalities, with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength, all of that wrapped together. What does that mean where you are? What might that mean for what your life needs to look like tomorrow and the day after and the decisions that you're making about work or career or family or whatever it might happen to be? And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He gives us this value of leading sincerely and, of course, living sacrificially. And if we'll do those things, we will thrive in fellowship with God and in fellowship with others. We will be at a place 
where our spiritual lives are able to take off and go to a brand new place from which we can live out of sincerity, not putting on airs, not suggesting something is true of us that isn't, but really living out of a core where drilled down is found Jesus. To live that out for his glory, for our obedience, for our blessing as well. This is how we're called to live. This is what really matters. What are you going to do with it? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, even though it's convicting. We would pray that we would never be people who are willing to take on this perspective or this attitude that says, yeah, I I know it says that, but I'm pretty good in a couple of these areas, and so maybe that's good enough. I'm all in with my heart, and I'm, I'm all in with my soul, and I'm not so much there with everything else, but but certainly that's something, that should count for something. And for many of us, we've been kind of skirting along the edges. Our spiritual life is just a series of taking a a little step and, and doing something that maybe it appeases our conscience, maybe it moves us a little bit toward Christ, but we then stop short and we start to pursue something else that is motivated out of some other heart, some other spirit. Again and again and again, Mark keeps telling us to follow and that what it means to follow is to give our all. To love the Lord our God with everything that we have in all areas of life, holding nothing back. Father, I pray that we would take these hard words and we'd not just keep pushing them off week after week, but that we might finally surrender ourselves and say, yes, this is where I'm going to be. This moment forward, for me, this is what really matters. Lord, I pray that we would be a church filled with those people. I just think of the dynamic things that could be done if we live as people who are centered on what really matters. Lord, make us those people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.